0: 18 plus. It, 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 time it's time for the Bible. Chris, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't. We, don't, we don't really Hayır. know for sure what it is. What is Oh, Holy ghost. God, God, God. God, God, God. Blast him. Ghost. God, God, God As friends, no it's time the box. Bible Geek here, namely Robert M. Price, um, and uh, got a bunch of questions, let's see if we can get right to them, enough with the vacuous chit-chat. Uh, this one from, uh, I think this is the first, now, Jaap, uh in uh, Holland, requesting a Dutch accent, which I probably cannot do, but let's take a crack at it, I gotta do it, do it eventually, I'm sure. Recently, a listener asked about whether carrying trumpets around Jericho would have amounted to violating the Sabbath, and you seem to endorse the idea that this was a simple oversight in the story. I must say I'm unconvinced, and I'd like your comment on the following alternative take. The commandment says nothing about carrying anything. It says to keep the Sabbath, for it is holy unto you, and specifies only that this means refraining from work. Work. That's about it, because the commandments' distinction between profane work on weekdays and sacred worship on the Sabbath was apparently so important, elaborate rules defining work, Malachah, were developed. The Talmudic details include the prohibition on moving things between domains, leading ultimately to such curious phenomena as the wires strung along utility poles around the city of Palo Alto. I'm sure you could find plenty of rabbis who might hold forth about the possibility of carrying trumpets on the Sabbath in Palo Alto today, but even the Orthodox recognize that these things are fences around the Torah. Precautions developed by the rabbis centuries after the alleged divine lawmaking to eliminate the mere possibility of violating an important but unfortunately fuzzy commandment. To apply such later constructs to a biblical story is outright ahistorical. The Israelites weren't doing profane work when they carried shofars around the city. They were acting on God's explicit orders. Nothing could be more sacred. Um, I, to tell you the truth, can't remember what the heck I said uh, there, but I agree with you completely. I doubt if... uh, Though I I think the um, story is plainly unhistorical, uh, it's not even as ancient as we uh, thought, but still it's uh, no doubt uh, does not have the niceties and minutiae of rabbinic rules in mind. So I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, so thanks for either agreeing with me or correcting me. I forget which, but I think you're quite right. Hey, sorry about that accent. I'll work on it. Um see this from John Brockman. So once upon a time it was fashionable fashionable among biblical scholars to paint the gospels as thoroughly hellenized a trend that rapidly declined following the middle of the 20th century for reasons no one can understand even a little bit <coughs> Hitler <coughs> now the trend has reversed and everyone is emphasizing the jewish nature of the gospels how jesus is the product of jewish rather than greek culture How much of this waffling is similar to other trends in historiography, that ideas rise and fall in popularity? How much of it is similar to trends in biblical scholarship, where researchers look to the scripture and see only reflection of themselves? My understanding is that we're talking about a myth based in Hellenistic Jewish culture, that the Gospels were written in Greek in the decades following Paul, and themselves show the competition between Jewish and Gentile Christian groups. Obviously, there's going to be Hellenistic and Jewish elements. Is there any reason to expect a sound that is historical rather than biblical consensus on the degree of influence of each uh, well, I do think that um the uh the what we really have today is Judaizing Jesus and the Gospels. In fact, I have a book outlined don 't know if i 'll ever get around to doing it called Judaizing Jesus uh, where I take on several of the uh, people that produce books on Jesus and the Gospels being Jewish and I uh, from different camps uh, and I argue that uh, this is simply one way of viewing it that Matthew does make Jesus more sort of proto rabbinically Jewish more scribally Jewish than Mark does for instance and so that seems to be an embellishment and um, Galatians as you um implicitly anyway Um, speaks of Judaizing Christians, so it's hard to know which type came first. Uh, I think the Last Supper obviously has a kind of mystery religion origin and gets Judaized by the time we read it. So uh, I think that uh, basically, yeah, the uh, Jesus the Jew kind of uh, consensus emerging today is um, the mirror reflection of ecumenical Jewish Christian dialogue? Of course, I think such dialogue is really great, and and uh, we should have had a lot more of it a long time ago. But that doesn't mean that what we would like to find in the New Testament is actually there, right? And and it seems to me that there is a substantial case to that has been made by uh, Crossan and uh, Downing and David Seely and Burton Mack uh, that a uh, whole lot of the teaching of Jesus uh, can best be understood in terms of popular cynicism and stoicism uh, you you also however have for many of those sayings rabbinic parallels uh, i think not for the most crucial ones but but a lot of them can a lot of the sayings can fit either framework and there's just no way to uh to be sure like the the question is will the real jesus please stand up and if there was a real jesus uh, he ain't going to be standing up anytime soon so i think it is a shifting of uh of fashion and that's not quite as arbitrary as i make it sound Really, you might say it's a succession of um, trying different paradigms on for size, uh, because it certainly is worth asking how much of the Gospels make sense in Hellenistic terms and how much make uh, sense in uh, Jewish terms, and uh, and as I've just said, it, we're kind of like donkeys caught, but at least I am caught between uh, two different haystacks. It's uh, th- th- it's an embarrassment of riches. The uh, the material doesn't just fall on one side, and it's it's almost a subjective matter. It certainly is at least a matter of judgment as to whether a judgment call, whether you think. Uh, you start with a Jewish Jesus or Jesus figure, and he gets Hellenized, uh, kind of like Harnack said, or if you start with a more uh, Hellenistic Jewish Jesus, uh, who then gets rabbinized. I, you could argue it either way, and and I think, uh, I mean, I'm no mind reader, but my uh, feeling is that, uh, my judgment is that we have... Um, supposedly historical Jesus studies being a function of ecumenism Uh, like uh, for instance another place where this kind of thing comes up there are a bunch of Jews and Christians who know about Old Testament minimalism and uh, don't like it because they charge the minimalists with being anti-State of Israel or possibly even anti-Semitic. I mean, of course, that's why Hitler thought Jesus was a Gentile, right? Uh, he's making Jesus into his own image. Well, uh, so some more conservative Jews and Christians say you minimalists are anti Israel, anti-Judaism, anti-Zionism, I don't know, whatever. And that's why you're trying to debunk the Old Testament to show that the whole idea of the chosen people and God giving them the land is just a land grab rationalization. Uh, and uh, so that's all you're doing. Of course, that's that's an ad hominem. You don't know that that's in the minds. I'm a big fan of minimalism, and I am a staunch supporter of the state of Israel. I just don't think the one has to do with the other. I, I don't support uh, Israel because I think uh, God wants me to or because the Bible it has nothing to do with that in my mind. right? And uh, so you, um, you you have this back and forth. And and you you have to wonder if those who oppose minimalism for implicitly political reasons are really doing the the same thing they're attacking minimalists for this sort of invidious uh, questioning of motives if they're just being apologists uh, and uh, they find a more traditional reading of the Bible more politically useful same sort of thing here I think and uh, I, uh, I I think you got to look closely at it and decide how you think it lines up, but the mere fact that it's that iffy means to me it's it's insoluble. What these scholars are really doing is saying, can we negotiate a historical Jesus template that will facilitate uh, Jewish and Christian theological coexistence? That's my opinion anyway. Of course, that does not invalidate anybody's work, right? You still have to look at the theories and the interpretations of passages and so on. Uh, So I don't want to dismiss anything with an ad hominem, but that is what I suspect is going on. Okay, uh, Commander Scotty says, uh, How solid are the arguments made by Jane Sheberg and others that Jesus was illegitimate? Uh, She had a book from uh, Harper and Row back in the 80s called The Illegitimacy of Jesus. She got in enough trouble uh, with that because she was teaching in Texas at the time, and once the book came out, she came back to the parking lot to get her car, and it uh, was uh, full of bullet holes. Yikes! Uh, imagine if she'd have just been blunt and said, "Jesus, the bastard!" That that would have been great, right? Uh, and uh, so uh, I think that she makes a strikingly good case uh, for uh, Matthew not trying to tell us there was a virgin birth, but rather making the best, putting a good face on uh, the belief which he admitted was true, that Jesus was the the result of either uh, adulterous fornication. I use that weird hybrid because, according to the story, they were betrothed, uh, and uh, to get out of that, you would have to have a kind of divorce, even though betrothal was not the same thing as marriage, but it was getting more and more like that, so what, if she had sex with some other guy would that make it adultery or fornication? Well, both actually, strangely. Anyhow, um or that she had been raped uh, and, uh, which would have made her used goods she still, you know, just look at the Islamic world today, or look at our world today, right, how uh, raped women are considered, uh, despite their total innocence, as if they're tainted or it's somehow their fault, right? So things don't change that much, right? Uh, So uh, she she says, let's suppose Matthew knew that and uh, said, look, God's will can redeem even that. Now, I grant that sounds like... Uh, liberal late twentieth century spin on the Bible, like some f- biblical feminist arguments were. Uh, some, not all, by the way. I think the f- like the feminist scrutiny of Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza and others was very revealing. Just take a look at my uh, book, *The Widow Traditions in Luke Acts*. But occasionally, I-, I think there were. Axe grinding, exegeses and so forth, but I don't think this is one of them. She argues that uh, there are odd things in the beginning of Matthew that that, almost imply the scenario I just said especially the strange inclusion of four women in the genealogy of Jesus. And and Matthew wasn't stuck with the facts, right? I mean, the whole genealogy is fictitious anyway. Uh, And so he decided who went in there. And he's got Bathsheba, Rahab, Tamar, and uh, Ruth. Why these women... I mean, there are plenty of other ones. No Sarah and all that. Uh, a lot of other ones that could have been in there, and uh, they're not. Uh, no no Rachel and so forth. And uh, I've heard a lot of sermons over the years about this, uh, and usually they say, well, these women are dubious, Uh, And, and in fact, more than the preachers understood, and Schaeberg points this out, but that just shows the grace of God can save even them. That was a step in the right direction of what uh, Schaeberg argues. He said, yeah, look at the four women, Bathsheba, uh, of course, uh, part of this murder plot, uh, David Caesar, sunbathing and says uh, hubba hubba and decides to have her husband killed so he can marry her and he does and all that and uh so that's uh shame attached to her uh tamar what's the deal there well she was married to judah's um son who who died and before he could impregnate her and according to the law of levirate marriage the next in line uh, in his the next of kin his his uh, next oldest brother would uh if not marry her at least impregnate her and uh and then the offspring would be considered the heirs of the the original husband uh, it, it is still the same bloodline, so th- I mean that was important to try to safeguard the line of inheritance, so they'd be considered uh the late brother's heirs, not those of the actual biological father. Well, uh this guy was uh wicked, and God killed him off, and uh, he had not yet impregnated. Tamar, and uh, so it it next goes to, I think that was Ur, I think that that was the guy's name, Eh, same name that appears in uh, Plato's Myth of Ur, I believe. Uh, Anyhow, um, the third one is the famous or notorious Onan, right? He is the youngest of the three, and uh, he decides not to impregnate her. Uh, Because uh, he says, look, it's not going to be my kid. That's a ripoff. One can certainly understand that, right? So what does he do? Well, uh, the way people have grossly misinterpreted this, he um, masturbated because it says he spilled his seed on the ground. I think that really is... It has nothing to do with the context it it, it uh, means he withdrew before he ejaculated right and so uh that's uh that's how he spilled the seed on the ground and the point was not to impregnate her uh and uh so uh god offs this guy too and uh so what happens? That's it. That's all the the sons he's got, right? Or maybe there, I forget now. Was there a fourth one who was just a kid and she'd have to wait ever forget. Uh, I think so. But uh, nonetheless, she's getting pretty antsy about this. So what she does is to dress up as a prostitute and pitch a tent by the side of the road that she knows Judah's going to be traveling by. And uh, so she seduces him, basically. And uh, she... Says, oh well, you know, I take credit cards. What do you got? And so, gee, all I've got is uh, my uh, signet ring. How about that? Uh, tell you what, I, I you can hold that in earnest. And I, the next time I come by, I will bring you uh, the money. Well, next time he comes by, she ain't there. No tent, no whore, no nothing. And uh, he doesn't know it's Tamar, right? She's got a veil on, at least on her face. And uh, and, and he says, yeah, well, guess I guess that ring goodbye. I wonder what happened. And uh, then Tamar does get pregnant off of Judah, and once she starts showing, uh, everybody is outraged. He says, you, what you're you're uh. uh you're you're cohabiting with somebody you're having sex with somebody who is not your husband i figure it's adultery against the late husband and uh they didn't like that they're about to stone her to death and uh then uh she says oh yeah take a look if you want to know who impregnated me take a look at this and she shows him judah's signet ring and then he realizes what's happened he said hey don't stone her I'm the guilty one, not her, because I, yeah, that's right, I withheld my youngest son from her, because all the other ones died, I didn't want him to, I didn't want to risk him, but uh, she is in the right, uh, I am in the wrong, and so they called it off, and she was okay. So uh, the the shame that attaches to her is the pretense to be a harlot, and her seducing um, Judah but, of course, the point is, she was the righteous one, because that's where we're going with Mary, right? Uh, and then what about Ruth? What, what is she doing in the Hall of Shame? Well, th- this has to do with the idiom of, um, of uh, you know, how uh, she, uh, Ruth, uh, she's a widow and she meets her husband's next of kin Boaz who's wealthy and they're uh, recovering after a wild party uh, to celebrate the first fruits or the wine harvest or whatever it was and uh, they're lying down drunk uh, presumably and uh, and it says that she lies down at his feet and uh, he's surprised to see her in the morning when he wakes up well I think the uh, the ancient uh, Hebrews correctly understood this to mean that she seduced him when he was sort of not with it and he didn't remember what he had done. And so, but that's fine because they live happily ever after and, and so forth. Uh, uh, so... There's something a little shady about it, but it's clever, and the end result is good, and that's where we're going with Mary, right? And then Rahab, uh, the harlot, right? That shame. There you go. But she's a heroine because she's a collaborator with the with uh, Joshua's spies, and they um, manage to they they give her uh, shelter when they take over Jericho and destroy everybody else in the joint. So what we've got here... Oh, yeah, back to Bathsheba. Uh, she, uh, the second child she had with David becomes King Solomon. Not bad, right? So Schaeberg points out it's only these four women, and uh, they're all uh, shamed in some way, but they're all vindicated, too. And In fact, uh, the, uh, the Tamar thing is especially important. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting parts of it. According to rabbinic tradition... Rahab married Joshua. So, you know, she was really elevated there. Okay, um, in one of the targums on Ruth, you know, these these several Aramaic paraphrases, sort of a living Bible version of various biblical books that tell us how people understood the stories in uh, nearly New Testament times. It was like they were... Well, like when I'm retelling these stories, right? And uh, so you can tell how people were understanding these things. And in the so we have like three or four versions of the Tamar story from Genesis. And, uh, it, and when they elaborate, they embellish the thing with uh, Judah at the last minute saying, wait a minute, I see what's going on here and why she did this. I am in the wrong. She is in the right. Well... The embellishments include one in which the voice of God uh, uh, is heard, and he says, "These two are righteous; this is from me, etc." Okay, keep that in mind. Uh, what is all this leading to in Matthew? Well, uh, you know how we it, Joseph finds that Mary is pregnant. And it's not his, and so he's about to put her away, but doesn't want to do it publicly because of the shame attached to it. What does he think has happened? Well, he might think that she's been cheating on him, or he might think she's been raped. Actually, either one would would have... uh, The rules uh, for what to do with a woman in such a position would be the same anyhow, as she shows. And um, the, the fact that the word virgin is used of her seems to reflect one of these, I guess, what, somewhere in the Pentateuch, one of these laws about if a virgin is seduced, etc. Okay, uh, and so he thinks that she, he's got to get rid of her, but wants to do it privately. And then, as you know, an angel tells him, no, hold on there. Uh, th- th- she is pregnant by the spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, does that mean it's like the Greek gods impregnating mortal women? Well, it might, uh, though theologians try to muddy that a bit, so it doesn't sound anthropomorphic and disgusting. But I think they have a real Christological problem when they do that. If it just means the Holy Spirit magically made her pregnant, you got real problems as to... Uh, whether the divine part of jesus should be spelled with a small d does that mean he's a created being or or is he the Holy Spirit incarnate? If that's not the case, oh boy, what a mess. Anyway, um, it, it needn't mean that. It could just mean that this is of God. This is of the Holy Spirit, right? You you might use that phrase to indicate this is clean, not unclean. This is holy, not profane. Yes, she was raped or whatever, uh, but God has decided that this um, her, her son will be the, the Messiah and so forth. And uh, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah, what about the, uh, the virgin shall conceive business? How, how could that be? Well, of course, the notion is she's already conceived and must have been a virgin uh, when, when it happened. Right, it it doesn't necessarily mean she is the perpetual virginity of Mary doctrine. I think Schaeberg makes a very good case, uh, and uh, she suggests that it was only later that um, the the virgin birth, as we understand it, was read into the text. Understandably, I mean, it's not an obvious twisting of the text like the Onan thing, but uh, it, it's uh, she says it's really a later. Uh, thing and uh, I mean, how could Jewish Christians have loved the Gospel of Matthew more than any other, uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, ex- and they yet they didn't believe in the Virgin Birth, the Ebionites. You know, well maybe they didn't read it as teaching. Uh, you know, a miraculous conception. Now, Schaeberg has a different argument for the Lucan virgin birth narrative or whatever, nativity story, that I, I do not find persuasive at all, and indeed I think she later repudiated it. Though there is a very good argument to be made that Luke is not trying to tell us Jesus was miraculously conceived either. Uh, I've gone into that before, but that, then we're not even getting into Schaeberg's argument. But I think uh, she has a, a very striking and plausible case there. So it's Jane Schaberg, S-C-H-A-B-E-R-G, The Illegitimacy of Jesus. Harper and Row published it, and then uh, Polbridge Press, publisher of the Westar Institute, they reprinted it uh, a couple of decades later, I guess. It shouldn't shouldn't be tough to find. Hmm. Okay. Uh, then uh, this is from The Pretheist. Um, he says, uh, Oh, he offers me a range, a menu of uh, accents. I think I'll do the Scottish. I'm a relatively recent listener and a long time biblical ignoramus. My curiosity was piqued in your Bible Geek show. Uh, 15030, w- during which you fleetingly mentioned the notion of abortion uh, being the quote taking of an innocent human life, or words to that uh, to this effect. You got me wondering where in the Bible the idea of ensoulment arises, and if so, uh, what uh, at what point in the development of the little critter does the Bible suggest this happens, if at all? As far as I can tell, there are three passages, one a quote of the other, that are invoked here, though though um, some Christian scholars readily admit that the issue is not really dealt with in any uh, clear way, and so they're just saying, just like I am, here's some passages that probably figured into early Christians' opinions. Um, Jeremiah one five, uh, God says to him, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you," which really means I chose you, right, to be a messenger to the nations and all of that. And then Paul uh, quotes that in Galatians one thirty five, same thing, uh, one fifteen. I'm sorry, uh, and I uh, I don't really know if that bears on it. Again, this is just what might come close to it. There's pretty slim pickings. Uh, To me, that uh, is is really saying God has foreknowledge. God plans, okay, this guy, I'm going to use him as a prophet. I I don't know if you could really push it further than that. Luke one fifteen is uh, uh, a bit more on target. This is where Mary, newly pregnant, Visits Elizabeth, who's six months ahead of her, and of course she's carrying John the Baptist. And when Mary arrives at the door, Elizabeth says, "It says that the babe leaped in her womb, and she says that the, he was that the the, uh, the infant John already was filled with the Holy Spirit." Well, uh, is that supposed to be typical? Uh, I. Uh, I don't know. Of course, the the idea of the babe leaped in the womb. It's the same word as uh, the, the s- struggling in the womb, and this whole thing is based on Jacob and Esau s- struggling in the womb, and uh, and uh, it's it's not clear, you know. The, and and that brings up the problem that there's a bit of a difference potentially between the fetus breathing uh, and and uh, quickening and all that, and having a soul. Uh, in the Old Testament, nephesh soul, means breath, pretty much. And in the New Testament, it sometimes seems to mean the same thing. And so it, it's really tough. The, you don't get very near this issue. And I, I so I, I think that uh, uh, the the notion of insolument, I think, first pops up with Tertullian. And uh, then a couple of centuries later, Gregory of Nyssa And uh, so forth, and they were probably informed by Aristotelian and other uh, theories about this, but I don't think it really comes up in the Bible. I have this nagging memory that there's some place in either Ecclesiastes or Zechariah where it speaks of the soul entering the the person in the womb, but I cannot find it. If anybody else knows it, I mean, I've done all kinds of searches. I can't spot it. If you run across it, let me know. Um, Serjan the Mighty says, uh, a minor nitpick on German from the... uh, June 25th episode, you said that Knecht, K-N-E-C-T snap out of it, Price K-N-E-C-H-T in Knecht Ruprecht means knight, when although the two words are etymologically related Knecht means farmhand or servant German for knight would be Ritter, R-I-T-T-E-R like John Ritter was John the Knight Thank you, Sir Jan, appreciate that uh, this from another from Commander Scully. It says, uh, The Synoptics suggest that John the Baptist's message had a strongly eschatological orientation and that he preached a fiery apocalyptic message foretelling imminent judgment and the arrival of a mightier one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, Mark 1, 7 through 8. But Josephus says nothing of this. Which source do you think presents a more accurate picture of John here, the synoptics or Josephus? Ah, boy, it's tough to say because you can argue plausibly that both are reflecting Christian views of John just different ones because it seems weird to me as I think I've argued in uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man that uh, Josephus should start Splitting hairs to assure the reader that John's baptism was not intended to wash away sins, but was merely an outer sign of uh, the cleansing accomplished in the soul by repentance. Uh, that I mean, that sounds like Baptist theologians trying to warn off, ward off Campbellites. Oh yeah, we baptize because we're sort of stuck with it, but we don't think it really means anything except as an outer sign and so forth. Uh, I I can't really imagine Josephus would be interested in that. I, I tend to think it's a Christian interpolation. Um, but then there's the uh, the uh, the business about how. In Josephus, how John was arrested by Herod Antipas because Antipas thought that since the people hung on every word from this guy, that if he said, let's uh, rise up against Herod Antipas, they might do it. And he figured, well, it better be safe than sorry, and arrested him. Uh, th- that opens the door for apocalypticism, especially if Richard Horsley is correct that the apocalyptic lingo was really a kind of fantasy code for revolutionary politics which is not far fetched uh, right that uh, the, the because the book of revelation refers to like a parthian invasion as the uh, toho studios like eruption of uh, centaur locusts from the bottomless pit and that kind of thing. So, could well be. And, uh, the uh, the Qumran people uh, certainly held the beliefs that are attributed to John the Baptist that, uh, shortly the, uh, the angels of god would descend and then it would be time to join with them in casting out the keteem uh the gentiles the, the the romans no doubt and uh so they were apocalypticists and they uh they uh, agreed with john on many things they ate locusts. We even have their recipe for that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they um, baptized, and uh, every day, which I think it implies in the Gospels, John did too. And uh, oh, uh, the, the idea of baptizing with fire and the spirit—that comes up in, I think, some of the hymns in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're so similar that uh, people have long theorized that John the Baptist had been a member of this group, though living as a hermit, he must have withdrawn. Uh, There's interesting theories such as that by Barbara Thiering that John the Baptist was the teacher of righteousness. Look, uh, that would make sense. And uh, so you could say that they're just emphasizing different aspects of uh of john's message that uh i know that's a harmonization but this is one of those places where i agree that uh everything we have about john is fragmentary and it could be that when we seem to have at least a difference in emphasis, somebody is right and somebody is wrong, but it might also be that uh, we're just seeing different parts of the elephant, right? The blind men and the elephant. That wouldn't be too surprising at all. Um, uh, plus, there is a, um, a great argument in Robert Eisler's book, the Messiah, Jesus, and John the Baptist, where he brings material in from the, uh, well, from Mandean sources and from the Slavonic Josephus about um, John the Baptist that might imply he uh, he was actually trying to raise a revolt. That is an immensely fascinating book. I don't know if that's been reprinted. Uh, but uh, it's, I don't know how easy it is to find, but Robert Eisler, E I S L E R, The Messiah, Jesus, and John the Baptist, just chock full of fascinating stuff you won't read elsewhere. Okay, Stephen Stiles, a buddy of mine, who recommended a book I'm reading now called uh, Barosis and Genesis Manetho and Exodus uh, which suggests that uh, the Bible was actually, the Pentateuch at least, was actually compiled and written by the Jewish scholars in Alexandria pretty much at the same time they turned out a Greek version of it <laughs> what a fascinating book so thanks Steve Okay it says um, in Matthew 27:32 why does tradition advocate that the antecedent of his in the the his cross phrase in Greek transliteration stauron um, autou uh refers back to Jesus and not the last nominative that appeared in the sentence the man named Simon, Simon of Cyrene. The same thing in in Mark, by the way. In fact, after Simon is mentioned, Jesus or any other nominative for that matter is not mentioned again until Jesus' name is mentioned on the sign the Romans nailed to the head of the cross, which at least grammatically suggests it was Simon and not Jesus who was given the wine mixed with gall and then crucified. Uh, I know Uh, several places you've advocated that the Bible contains literary markers that point to narratives where Jesus uh, either wasn't nailed to the cross and, because you know none of the Gospels say that uh, except in John 20 with the business about Thomas he says he, unless he puts his fingers into the nail prints in Jesus' hands, so that assumes that he was nailed to the cross but no crucifixion accounts uh, did Okay, or that he survived the Roman attempt to crucify him. Could a problem with antecedents in Matthew 27 be evidence that this Pericopes author thought Simon and not Jesus was crucified? Uh, yeah, now I will admit this could just be... A grammatical goof, not too tough to to find them in the Bible, right? That, that, I mean, many would say, oh, come on, obviously he means Jesus. Yeah, he forgot to use the name Jesus again, the last name that appeared was Simon, Uh, but um, it's got to be Jesus. That's entirely natural. That's entirely plausible. That's not an abuse of the text. But the fact that we know from Irenaeus, I believe it is, that um, Simon Magus claimed that he had previously appeared in Judea as Jesus and uh, was thought to be crucified, or, or but wasn't. I mean, you've got a belief, however garbled, among some that Simon Magus was the one crucified and of course this uh, goes on through some types of docetism gnosticism and winds up in the quran right uh, because that it must mean that people, Docetic and Gnostic Christians uh, among others, embraced Islam because the Quran says exactly this, those who thought they, uh, uh, they killed him were mistaken uh, they neither crucified nor killed him, but it was a simulacrum what does that mean exactly? In other words it was, it was a decoy it was uh, a copy it was a, a case of mistaken identity and there have always been numerous Muslim um, theories as to who it was. Was it Judas? Was it Pilate? Was it Sergius, a Roman uh, undercover uh, false disciple, a spy? Uh, was it Judas that I say him, Pilate, etc.? All kinds of theories. Uh, and uh, so I have to, uh, in light of that, I, I follow the old Kester Robinson trajectory approach, and suddenly this looks to me like we have a uh, uh, um, a preservation of the uh, the view of uh, Basilides... I th- no, uh, I believe it was Carpacrates who said that it wasn't Jesus on the cross, it was Simon Magus. Now, of course, he may have gotten it from the Gospel of Mark or Matthew interpreted this way, but the fact that there's this whole trajectory, you have to wonder if that's not what's going on in, in the Simon of Cyrene passage, just like the Barabbas passage, Right? Who do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called Christ? And they call for Jesus Barabbas. Now that could, you know, that's, that's a real name. But it happens to mean Jesus, the son of the father, Abba. Oh boy, you gotta wonder if they're saying Jesus, the son of the father, escaped. Uh, and that it was Jesus called Christ, not the real thing, who was crucified. I don't know, right? We'll never know. But you you have to wonder. These things are, if they're coincidences, they're mighty striking. And uh, so I take both of those docetic um, readings very, very seriously. Oh, let's see. What do we got next? um yeah, this is, I think, Jorby, who requests a Bloomfield, New Jersey accent. Uh, of course, I lived in Bloomfield many years. Uh, see, Get this. Jesus had just been condemned by the crowd in Luke 23, 15 through 23. The people wanted Jesus crucified and uh, uh, the known seditionist and murderer Barabbas was set free. This is just to set the stage for what happens next. Our careful historian Luke may have forgotten to explain something to us from the RSV Luke 23.20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they shouted out, "'Crucify! Crucify him!' A a third time he said to them, "'Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no crime deserving death. I will therefore chastise him and release him.' But they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, whom they asked for, but Jesus, he delivered up to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This is all fortuitous. I didn't juxtapose these on purpose. Uh, You must tell me if I've missed something here. Uh, other than Jesus being struck on the face in Luke twenty two sixty four, it doesn't say a thing about Jesus being beaten, whipped, having a thorny crown, or even having bunions before Simon uh, the Cyrenian just happened to be passing along when he bore Jesus' cross. Could this be a reference to anything but picking up a physical cross such as Simon Peter, the Cyrenian, perhaps taking over the ministry? Uh, by the way... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, let me go on. Other than that smiting on the face, which Jesus presumably turned his other chief to, there are no indications in Luke that Jesus was physically armed, not even nails being driven into his body until Luke 23.33. Uh, Luke 23.33 indicates the crucifixion finally occurs, and when they came to the place... Uh, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Uh, wait a minute now. Does Luke have Jesus before crucified him? Let's take a look. Because, you know, this brings up the same problem as the as Matthew and uh, Mark. Uh, let's see, that's 25 three uh 33 um <laughs> oh yeah all right uh in verse 26 and as they led him away they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never gave suck. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two well, others also uh, were, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him when they came to the place which is called the Red Skull. There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, yeah, okay, in Luke, the, the hymn can't be uh, Simon because there's plenty of uh, Jesus references between the cross being uh, laid on Simon's shoulders, and then they they crucified him. Okay, um, all right. Uh, What say at the geek? If all a church or reader had was Luke, these questions would be about 1,900 years old, I would think. What is the true function of Simon the Cyrenian? Symbolic? Literal? Ministerial? We certainly get no indication of what happened to Simon after the crucifixion. Could there be an interpolation of some sort where Simon is really Simon Peter, upon whom the church would be built? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, You might want to take a look at my book, Deconstructing Jesus. Uh, where I um, uh, what was I think the chapter is in the beginning was the deed, and I give a kind of Girardian reading of, uh, of the whole thing and how all the Simon and Peter characters really boil down to the same thing. Uh, it would make a lot of sense if it were Simon-Peter, uh, and uh, originally who who carried the cross. Because, of course, in John 21, there is the implicit prediction that uh, Simon Peter is going to die by crucifixion, right? That's pretty interesting. And, uh, and then, of course, in the Acts of uh, Peter and uh, various other early texts, Peter dies by crucifixion. Uh, that is really interesting, uh, and and it certainly would uh, describe the clout he had if somebody had originally said Peter was crucified then and there. Right, but then uh, maybe that conflicted with the need to have Peter go ahead and function as an apostle rather than uh, have. Other disciples carry on his legacy. It's really interesting, Jorby. You got a good one there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that is a fascinating possibility. But again, I would suggest you take a look at Deconstructing Jesus and the chapter In the Beginning Was the Deed. Nice work. Uh, let's see. John Tusick, am I saying that right? T U S C I U K. I was just listening to the uh, Victorious Birthday episode, uh, June 16, uh, of the Bible Geek, and you asked about any phrases in the New American Standard Bible that were poorly translated, apparently for theological reasons. You know, I was saying how the NIV has, has uh, fudged it occasionally, but to my knowledge, the New American Standard has not, but I don't know, and so please let me know. Okay. John says, One that I know of, uh, is that Matthew twenty-eight two is translated such that the stone was already rolled away when the angel appeared. A severe earthquake had occurred in order to harmonize the verse with Mark 16.14, right where the angel pushes it away. Uh, I've seen apologists claim that the text should be read in the past tense, but the New American Standard is the only translation I know of that actually translated translates it like that. Ah, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I remember well how in a uh, a course I had uh, uh, at Gordon Conwell all these years ago, uh, privileged to have the great Ramsey Michaels as a professor in it. I think he suggested that that it should be translated. Uh, th- uh the uh the, the occur- earthquake had occurred and all that and i remember a friend of mine a frenchman andre can't think of his last name i was talking to him about it afterward and this guy was a conservative evangelical but he was enough of a scrupulous scholar uh that uh, he said i could not believe uh, professor Michaels would say that uh, cuz it does just have uh the present Right, it happened as they were looking, and uh, yeah, that's though Ramsey Michael's great stuff. Though that I was a little surprised to hear too. If it's if possibly uh, Dr. Michaels is uh, listening or ever hears this, which is remotely possible, he and I are both H.P. Lovecraft fans and so on. Um, I welcome him to correct me if I've uh, gotten that wrong in any way. Uh, I remember I was in that class with uh, Ben Witherington III, who is an apologist whose work I cannot stand. Uh, let's see. So, thank you. Yeah, that's that's good. Anybody else that knows any, let me know. Cause I, as you know, I I like the New American Standard very much, and uh, I, uh, I'm always sad to hear when you got some cheating going on there. Okay, here's one uh, last one for today from, uh, let's see, it says, Oh, Geek, My Geek, another question from Alexander, the Ph.D. student in Ohio. You know, I think a bunch of you geeks should uh, look into Ph.D. degrees in New Testament, though I would also say a bunch of you don't really need it. Um, I recently read a Christian exegesis of the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19 that I would like your geeky opinion on. I was amazed to read that the Christian in question believes that the Jesus telling the parable of the ten minas intends a meaning completely opposite that of my own reading. This Christian says, Billy Graham voice, please, This wasn't one of those this is how things should be sorts of parables. This was a this is not how it is in the kingdom of God sort of parable. This Christian claims that the tax collecting Zacchaeus story immediately preceding the parable of the ten minas sets up a context within which we are to understand the parable. Since the Zacchaeus story ends with the tax collector giving away all his money, seemingly the opposite of the following parable, the Christian in question claims that we should interpret the parable of the ten minas as satire uh, to tell us that the uh, that the rich who have everything blessing the poor who have nothing is the true mark of discipleship and the way of life in the kingdom of God. I was even more surprised to see other Christians posting that they agreed and had also heard the parable taught in this manner. Huh? This really doesn't make sense to me. The parable clearly intends to place the reader in the position of the servants, not the Lord. So it's not clear how the reader is supposed to relate to and or learn from the actions of the king. How is any first or second century reader supposed to put themselves in the shoes of a king who goes on a long journey to a far away kingdom and comes back with royal authority? Isn't it obvious that the character of the king stands allegorically for Jesus with the basic outline of the story cribbed from the ascension of Archelaus to the throne? Uh, Yeah, that's right, because, you know, um, the people sent an embassy to uh, ward off the coronation by the emperor. He says, we will not have this man to reign over us, but he gets the kingship anyway and comes back and says, "Uh, bring those nuisances in here and kill them before me. Yikes. Um, uh, Let's see. Also the point of the parable isn't to accumulate wealth. That would make it a teaching, not a parable Uh, so much as to grow in faith and to do something with the time and talents you've been given. I think you're completely right. Isn't the Zacchaeus story a red herring with respect to how we understand the parable? It's got nothing to do with it. Uh, moreover, the parable of the ten minas is clearly a rewrite of the parable of the talents in Matthew, yet no Christian ever says that the proper interpretation of the parable of the talents is anything other than its plain reading, that is, God's expecting you to do something with your life. I fail to see how anyone can claim that the parable of the ten minas means to teach the exact opposite of what the parable of the talents teaches. It seems like the only reason Christians want to say that the parable of the ten minas means the opposite of its plain meaning is because they don't like the bit at the end about killing those who don't want Jesus to be king over them. From listening to your podcast, my interpretation is that the story is a rewrite of the parable of the talents intended to dampen the apocalyptic expectations of the contemporary readership by suggesting a rather long delay of the second coming, right? The fact uh, that the ending contains violence against non-believers might tag this story as relatively late, given that a small cult struggling for membership is less likely to persecute non-believers than an established institution with real social power. What does the geek think? Is the Christian's interpretation of the parable of the ten minas correct, plausible, or ridiculous? I- I'd say it's ridiculous. Um... And uh, let me just add that this is a prime example of what I call the irony dodge. Uh, I think I first noticed this in G.B. Caird's Pelican commentary on the Gospel of Luke, where he says that he's trying to make sense out of the fact that in Luke 16, he says... um, that uh he seems to, to reject the no divorce, uh, the uh sorry the divorce provision in Deuteronomy and then says uh not a jot or a tittle of the law will pass away before the heavens and earth do uh, wait a minute didn't jesus just reject what the torah says well, Caird, see, that is a heap of a problem. My guess is that Luke didn't know what the Torah said and thought Jesus was reiterating it, right? But uh, Caird said, uh, wait a minute, uh, Jesus must have been sarcastic here. Oh, yeah, you scribes think that uh, the world would end before any change could come to the Torah. <laughs> no, uh, nice try. Right. And and ever since then, I've written in the margins of scholarly books. Someday I'm going to go collect them all. Um, that uh, th- th- this, this and that and the other are examples of the irony dodge. In fact, once I said at the Jesus seminar, I, I think we ought to introduce a fifth color uh, where, you know, black, Jesus couldn't have said it. Uh, gray, he could have said it, but probably not. Pink. Uh, he might well have said it, but we can't be sure. And red, oh yeah, he, he definitely said this. I think we ought to add purple for uh, to to signal to signal those sayings where Jesus did say it, but he was only kidding. Right? Uh, give all your money to the poor. Just kidding. Uh, turn the other cheek, had you going there, didn't I? Uh, and uh, that's what people have, in effect, been doing, and that's what this is doing. And you're right, they just uh, uh, don't know what to say when people say, look, this is your your gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that at the second coming he's going to say, you bastards who didn't want me as Lord and Savior, hallelujah, uh, you can go to hell and I'll help you get there, Right they're uh, they they they're embarrassed by that well in a sense it speaks well of them that they are embarrassed but I don't think you can get around uh, this there are three things going on there because the, as you say the parable has gone through various stages just like a lot of the Old Testament stories it's ideological stories meant to explain something well people tell them for a while and they say hey you know this would explain something else so they had put a, another barnacle on the hull same thing here the original uh, notion has to be that God is the uh, the king uh, and uh, he has gone away. It's just that he's always visibly absent, right? And he has given you, he has entrusted to you, your life. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Because one day there'll be an accounting. Uh, okay, uh, you know, you lived so many years. Uh, did you make good use of the time? What have you done? <laughs> Uh, well, I sat around playing video games a lot. Uh, uh. Uh, and uh, it's, so yeah, that's certainly the point. And what a great parable. There's a similar one in uh, the Gospel of Thomas. He says uh, that uh, one day this heaven uh, will roll up to reveal the heaven above it. That is the one where God lives and can be seen. Uh, and uh, the angels and the prophets will come to you demanding what is theirs. So you better be ready. Well, what is that? Well, your life, right? They want an accounting of what you did once the last judgment comes about. That's the point, and it's a great one. What a terrific parable. Okay, um, well, in... uh, In uh, Luke, he has introduced two new things on it. One is, as you say, the delay of the parousia. There are three places where Luke does this. One is in Luke 17, where it says the Pharisees asked, when will the kingdom of God come and what sign? will signal that. And he says, the kingdom the kingdom of God, the world of God is not coming by signs to be observed, nor will men say, lo, here it is, or there, for the kingdom of God is within you. Or the world of God, sorry, I don't want to stick with the Defoe version. Okay, uh, in other words, don't think you can check off the signs like Hal Lindsey, oh, oh, common market, NATO, uh, it's got to be the beast, right? Uh, No, that's, now you do find that in Mark uh, 13, right? But this is a way of saying, no, look, forget that. You're not going to be able to calculate it because the kingdom of God that matters is in you, Uh, Again, like Thomas, uh, when's the repose of the dead going to come? And he says, what you expect has already happened. You just don't recognize it. Same deal. Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I think it is, uh, that, gee, Lord, is, is now the time you're going to restore independence to Jews? And he says, just forget that the times and seasons that God has plotted out are no business of yours. You just get busy spreading the gospel. Uh, in other words, he's got the, uh, the uh, people, the uh, Pharisees, the stupid disciples, raising questions in the reader's mind to have Jesus address them. And this is the third one, because Luke kindly tells you right at the, the outset, uh, because a lot of people, as Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, thought, oh boy, oh boy, the kingdom is about to come. Jesus, hearing this, uh, says, no, look, let me set you straight. You, you get this? Here's the parable. He, the king... The guy about to be king goes away for a long journey to a faraway country to, to receive kingship, uh, and of course that's that means Jesus has ascended, and it's going to be a long time till he comes back. But when he does, the people that didn't uh, want Jesus to be Lord, they're going to wish they had. Now, why? Try to deny that because uh, the Gospels have plenty of other things. Whoever is ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes with his uh, uh, his father's angels and all of that. Uh, there's there's various ones that you you're in big big trouble if you haven't signed on. Uh, John the Baptist. Those who don't repent will be uh, uh, thrown into the unquenchable fire, etc. Why try to? I mean, you're apologizing for the Bible, don't you get that's what apologetics means? Now uh, you're you're having to you're ashamed or embarrassed at things in the Bible that you you know shouldn't be there if your theory is right or your conscience is right and so you start trying to rewrite it uh, i think it's that's a ridiculous attempt um uh, let's see Okay, uh, yeah, uh, Alexander goes on to say, by the way, it's pretty telling that the author of this theory prefaces his exegesis by expressing his discomfort with the fact that the parable of the ten minas has a message that contradicts that of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I guess he means the traditional interpretation of it, right? Would contradict the Sermon on the Mount. So it can't be a good interpretation. As I've heard you say, might this be a classic case of interpreting Scripture with Scripture? Of course, that's a euphemism for twisting one Scripture to make it sound like another. Bravo, you bet it is. Um, oh, let's see. Here's one more. Okay, Robert Church. Now, there's a sanctified name. Uh, my friends and I have always wondered about the story in 2 Kings 3, uh, entitled in some Bibles, Jehoram Overcomes Moab's re- Revolt. This passage tells a story about the Israelites teaming up with the Edomites to take down the Moabites. The key passage is 2 Kings three twenty six to 27 When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, the king, uh, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. So everybody could see it on the city wall. And uh, and there came great wrath against Israel and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Other translations make it clear that in the end, it's the Israelites that were forced to return to their own land following the human sacrifice of the king of Moab's son. So here's my question. Is this passage saying that the sacrifice to the Moabite god Hamash, I think so, actually worked a miracle against Yahweh and the Israelites? And shouldn't the story really be called Jehoram tries to overcome Moab's revolt? Uh, massacres a huge number of Moabites, but runs away after losing the war. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd say so. Oh, wait a minute. I don't think that's Robert Church. I will read his next. I don't know what I did with the name of that Bible geek. Yeah, I think so. And I, I do think that... Uh, like, you, you can... I I have theorized on the show in the past that this may be a kind of truncated, garbled um, version of something like the disaster at Ai in the book of Joshua, that there was some... Lapse uh, some misstep by the Israelites uh, that led to this, but I admit that's just rewriting the story. I think as it stands, it does seem to mean that there was uh, power in the blood of that sacrifice and that the, the, it strengthened the Moabite deity to rout the troops of Yahweh. Now, that could, now, th- why would any Jew put that in the Jewish Bible? Well, uh, two reasons. It, the, the thing could stem from the, the time of henotheism, where it was believed that the nation's gods did exist. It was just that Israel was not to worship them. And these guys are not in Israel, right? They're, they're on a foreign excursion to take out the Moabites and neighboring people. But if they're on that God's own ground, then he can beat them. Uh, I think just like David, when uh, he Saul forced him out of the country and he had to team up with, I think it was Doeg the Edomite or somebody, he said, well, geez, I've been forced to worship other gods. You know, what in Rome do is the Romans do. So I think that's uh, implied. Maybe there's uh, an implicit assumption that they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have had this incursion. I, I don't know, though, but... Yeah, I, I think that is uh, the assumption, and that's correct. They're they're just uh, what what the point was supposed to be. Who knows? It may just be a fragment that was uh, thrown in there. Uh, pretty shocking. Uh, Now, this is from Robert Church. I'm sorry, Bob. A few years ago, some friends of mine read the entire Bible in a sort of book club format. I was extremely grateful for your podcast for helping us to find resources that shed light on the text. Recently, my group has reformed to read the Quran, and I've been disappointed to find a paucity of scholarship on the origin and development of the text. Various members of the group have read Reza Aslan's No God But God... Or Karen Armstrong's Islam, A Short Introduction. These are interesting and enlightening books, but they both uncritically present the traditional account of the development of Islam and the Quran. Alas, there is no Quran geek, at least not in English. I know this is a bit outside your bailiwick, but uh, thanks for not saying wheelhouse. Right? Uh, but we would be grateful if you could direct us to some resources. Peace be upon you. Um, I uh, would uh, think you'd really enjoy uh, some of the works of uh, Ibn Warraq, I-B-N-W-A-R-R-A-Q. He uh, published a bunch of them through Prometheus Books, but just look up his name on Amazon. He has some great collections. Of of important essays about uh, the Quran and where it really came from, uh, and and it's much more complex than uh, you're supposed to believe. Some of it is heavy going, but you really do need to read it to to get an idea what the Quran really is. And uh, so I would just take a look on Amazon, and I think you'll see the books you need. He's he's written on some other topics vis-a-vis Islam uh, and all of them are well worth reading but I think that's where you'd find what uh, you really want I am uh, bugging Ibn Warik to do his own annotated edition of the Quran which would just be extremely helpful Um, okay um yeah, I guess I'll call it quits uh, for today, and I'll hopefully get back together with you uh, um, pretty soon. I-, I have some trips coming up, so there will be some dry spells, so I'm trying to get a bunch of geeks done uh, so uh, sort of balance it out. Uh, Thanks for being with me on The Bible Geek today. And again, if you can contribute to our creditor's well-being, sure would appreciate that. But uh, there is no price of admission. Don't worry about that. Uh, There's a price, but, well, anyway, I'll uh, see you next time on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Serjan Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvender.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at AOL.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Anderson. long place on the firing line So you'd better brush from Bible And look up to the stars when they shine